What if there were a different way to see the world to combat climate change and environmental destruction, a way to empower the rights of nature itself? Our next guest is challenging us to think about what happens if we flip the model which allows people to give themselves rights over nature, like the right to extract fossil fuel or the right to protect. What happens when you give nature its own rights? Professor Anne Polina is co-chair of Indigenous Studies and Senior Research Fellow at the Nulungu Institute at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. She's a Kimberley Nyikinawara Indigenous woman and chair of the Marawara Fitzroy River Council. Anne joins us now from Broome. Welcome to Late Night Live. Thank you very much. And I'm speaking to you tonight on my home country, which is Jugan and Yaru country in Broome. And before we get into this issue of rights for nature, I wonder if you could start by describing for the listeners this, this beautiful, very beautiful country you come from. Oh, yeah, the Kimberley is magnificent. I mean, the Kim, as we say, once you come here, you're always a part of it. So it's an amazing biodiverse and culturally diverse um, catchment system. It's national heritage uh, listed in 2011. It's also the largest registered Aboriginal cultural heritage site in Western Australia. So it has amazing cultural and biodiverse values, but the people, not just Indigenous people, but the people who come from, come to this place become a part of it and they always remain part of it. It is ancient country, as you say, but it also has large deposits of fossil fuels. In fact, you were very much involved in the su- successful protests against the proposed gas refinery at James Price Point in 2013. Could you take us back to that struggle and tell us what you learned from it? Yeah, no, it was a very interesting journey. I think one of the things was the ability for local people to come together and unite on a matter of such great importance not just to industry, but to family and community. So it's been a great opportunity to have really been through that journey and reflect back and think about how did we come together as a as a community to stand in solidarity to protect James Price Point Walmadan um, for generations to come. You talk about that sense of solidarity, but I guess we also know of places, different parts of Australia where these issues have split Indigenous communities, that tension between the need for jobs and income security and the desire to protect country. Is that part of what's persuaded you that there needs to be another way to approach this? Um, Well, I think, you know, one of the things is I come from the oldest living culture in the world and it's all about leadership and governance. And so from that perspective, here in the Kimberley, we always govern from a regional perspective of bringing everybody together to look at how do we care for the commons, for the greater good of the commoner and for each and every one of us, but also thinking about multi-species justice, which is really the focus of my work, because what we're seeing in terms of the rights of nature is that Indigenous people across the globe are the ones at the front line protecting these amazing last bastions of biodiversity right across the globe. And we've been able to come together with, you know, legal practitioners and researchers and find a different way to really uphold the rights of nature under the leadership of Indigenous people and Native people across the planet. So I guess what I'm looking at is really pushing those boundaries to go, well, what does that actually mean, nature's rights? And looking at how do we interpret law of the land, not law of man, and bring that into a different way to see and be in the world. 
I'd like to explore the nature's rights issue more with you in a moment. But meanwhile, we, we know that fossil fuels are speeding up climate change at a rate of knots. The fires, floods we've seen across our country, including, of course, around the Fitzroy River, where your mother comes from, and the recent floods in the remote Northern Territory. What do the elders say about the way the climate is changing, Anne? Well, it's exactly right. I think one of the things for many listeners that may not know was in January 20. 23 this year, we had the largest flood ever recorded in West Australia's history. So we are right at the coalface of, you know, changes in country. And I guess one of the things is, as I said, my community was totally underwater. We still have not been able to get back to see the extent of the damage. So prior to um, the wet season, for the last two years, I've been working on country with um, traditional owners, custodians, community practitioners, looking at the Boab population because those of you that may be aware, Boab population, Ababab in Africa are keystone species and apparently that species will be lost to humanity within 50 years because the water table is shifting. So we decided that we wanted to look at the only um, species of Boab in the Kimberley and part of that is it's given us two years of very clear um observation of fusing both Indigenous science, Indigenous traditional ecological knowledge and Western science and bringing those bodies of knowledge together to what we call read the country, feel the country, listen and see what climate is already doing. We are seeing sea level rise, temperatures rising, um, food and water scarcity and insecurity. So all of these um, what they call bioindicators or what we call signs, what the country is giving us, was already starting to come into play in the last 10 years. So we're very, very cautious about, one, the precautionary principles in terms of do we really understand what is, you know, touted to befall us for the next 10 years, according to the Bureau of Meteorology? So this recent flooding that happened in the Kimberley, everyone was really, you know, every outside person who's come to help has been looking at this from, oh, look what the river has done. But the elders that I work with and right across the catchment is saying, this is not what the river has done. This is man-made. This is human-induced. So the climate impacts that we're getting have been contributed by man's change of the landscape and the extraction of energy such as from oil and gas and coal and all of those things. So this ancient wisdom is telling us that we cannot continue to have business as usual um, if we're going to try and respond and be resilient and adaptable to climate change. So all of these things are showing that we need collective wisdom because we are dealing with complexity. And unless we listen to the voices and we get the um, Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous wisdom, we're not going to be able to right-size not only our nation but the planet. So how can Indigenous wisdom protect humanity from climate change? Can you outline some of the kind of contours of that? Well, I think one of the things that we're saying is that, you know, we're talking about preventative um, chaos and uncertainty and, and unjust development. And so what we're saying is that we believe that it's time that we really need to have a pause. As I said, my friend um, Greg Campbell has written a book called Total Reset. We need to reset the way we see and be in the world. We need to understand that we cannot keep extracting these energy systems and not impact on the planet. So what we're saying as Indigenous people, particularly in this country, being the oldest living culture in the world, is that 
We need to ground our collective thinking and our collective action in understanding what Indigenous people can bring to this dialogue in terms of transforming the change. At the moment, what we're talking about is really a clash of values. Who gets to determine what should be done and, and not done? And so it's very important that we bring in Indigenous thinking, Indigenous wisdom, but our lived experience living on the land with the land. And what we're saying to our fellow Australians is that what we're seeing right around this country, not just in the Kimberley, but the need for us to look at how do we come together and develop the way we um, understand impacts of development from an informed basis. If somebody wants to come and do something in the region, how do we bring it to the table where we can all sit down and have informed decision-making, understand the impacts, look at what the cost might be and look at what the benefits might be and weigh that up as people living in the region to determine what should be in and what should be out. So let's unpick that idea a little further. I mean, can you explain your thinking around, for example, if rivers had rights and, as you say, a, a development is proposed and the, and the people behind that come to town and meet with the community, if the river already has the rights that don't need to be proven and don't rely upon people's connection with it, then how would you imagine that conversation going? Well, that's a very interesting um story because what we have in Western Australia is we actually have a legal precedent where Indigenous people and the state government work together to take a legal case on the Ashburton River story. And the story from that was that Twiggy Forrest was looking at, um, sorry, pardon me, Andrew Forrest was looking at putting 10 weirs um, through the um, Ashburton River. And what the Aboriginal people from that um, River said was that if Twiggy was to put these weirs along the Ashburton River, it would kill their ancestral serpent being. So that was a legal case that has been founded in Western Australia through the State um, Arbitration Tribunal. And when that came up and it found in that case, obviously Andrew Forrest is challenging this, but what we're showing is that there's room within the legal framework to start to see these rivers, as I said, not in terms of personhood and nature's rights, but in terms of ancestral being rights. And so this is a little bit of a change to just personhood. It's recognising rivers as ancestral living beings, not only with a right to life, but a right to live and flow. And we've seen the voice become a contentious issue in the Indigenous population, but also the broader population with some some complaining there's not enough detail, others saying the presence of a voice to parliament would, parliament would have made sure, for example, that policymakers were better informed about the impact of alcohol in, the, in Alice Springs. Do, do you have a different take on the voice? Um, I, I think, you know, when the millenniums are speaking, what they're saying is that this is a no-brainer. Indigenous people do need to be recognised in the constitution. I totally agree we need to be clear about what the framework for engagement going forward should be. Um, my take on it is that we really need to be giving voice to young people in terms of what their dreams and hopes are, particularly Indigenous people, in terms of how do we bring the rest of the population with us. So the story is a very um, long overdue story in terms of justice. I saw um, Justice French put a posting on that this is a recognition of the long um, story of colonialism in this country. And what I'm saying in the work that I do is that Today, it is about all of us. 
we are trying very hard to bring the rest of the Australian population with us. And in order to do that, we need a story that's going to show that there's a collective responsibility in how we move forward with leadership and governance across the nation. So from that perspective, I think that um, there should not be a challenge, but I think there is a real query in terms of how is the voice of remote Indigenous people going to be factored into the decision-making process? How do people in very remote locations get to um, privilege what they want in this story? So it's for me, it still has a little um, journey to go in terms of looking very closely at what the concepts of the detail should be. But I think, you know, we as Australians, particularly fair-minded Australians are saying that we should really be thinking about how do we look at this from a regional perspective? How is the voice of region and remote um, Indigenous people going to be factored into this? It yeah. is interesting, Anne. Sorry, just to add, chime in there. Canberra, there's very much focus on Canberra, isn't there? You know, voice to parliament and, and what that office or what that body would look like in Canberra. But I guess there's also the question about well, what does it mean for regional representation? What does it mean for regional catchments? How uh, are those views and opinions going to be prioritised? Yeah, no, that's a very important point. And I guess one of the things that many Australians may not be aware of is that in this country, we have a policy that isn't in place at the Commonwealth level until 2030, and it's framed around what we call nature reserve systems or bioregional frameworks. So every part of Australia has already been mapped into watersheds, into regional um, watersheds, and so it allows us to look at how do we govern and determine, particularly in terms of climate change, how do we work together at a regional level, at a catchment level, at a watershed level to really start to read the country and understand these impacts so that we can respond from the regional level and then work through to the state and the Commonwealth. And 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 you, I've seen you say elsewhere that local government, you think, has a key role here and should really be empowered in any new power structures. Oh, most definitely. I think one of the things is, um, well, even local government, I mean, local government is not in the constitution. And this was one of the um, constitutional queries that were up, you know, before fellow Australians. So at the moment, I've been working in local government for the last 20 years. And what we've seen is amalgamation of local government. So the existing model of local government does not work. We need economy of scale. We need to be able to look at this from a much region, bigger regional perspective. So my notion is that when we start to have a conversation about the legitimacy of local governance and regional governance, we really need to be thinking about a framework that is going to look at the collective well-being of all of us in the region, Indigenous and not, which could be grounded in what I'm calling a biocultural model. So having an Indigenous um, leadership table that can come together, think about things, but then be able to inform a much bigger regional stakeholder uh, group which has everybody at the table. So I think there is room to look at, one, that the fact that we do have an existing policy until 2030. And might I say that the only place in Australia that I'm seeing this happen is in the Blue Mountains. And so there is this opportunity before 2030 to start to look at how do we govern and how do we lead from a much bigger regional perspective. I wanted to ask you, how could this new biocultural model, this new way of seeing nature's rights, impact something like the latest threat to the Pilbara region and to our climate emission targets, which is the Scarborough Gas Project? Where does the conversation begin there through the prism of a new model? 
Well, I think it's about bringing a wide range of diverse um, people to the table, particularly in terms of Indigenous leadership. I think one of the things at the moment is this concept around who is the representative voice, who speaks in the region for Aboriginal people, and what we should be able to do is have an opportunity to bring diversity to the table, to bring diverse Indigenous leadership that can also influence the way that we're thinking about. Because as I said earlier, we're dealing with complexity. We need collective wisdom. We need science, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. We need to be able to look at these projects and look at the cumulative impacts of development on the well-being of all people in the regions. Finally, Anne, it is International Women's Day. So what would you like to tell people about the conditions for women and children in many remote communities in Australia? Yeah, look, what I'm saying is that right around Australia, what we're seeing is that we really need to give voice to our young leaders. We need to raise their profile. We need to give them an opportunity to lead. And when I'm talking about young people, I'm talking about leaders in their 30s and 40s who've got a different way of seeing how we can operationalize the world in which we live. So it's women having a voice, privileging our story, being brave and putting our stories out there and saying we want an inclusive paradigm, an inclusive way of walking and working together with fellow Australians. We want you to feel your country, hear your land and be a part of it. And on that hopeful note, thanks for speaking to LNL. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Professor Anne Polina is the co-chair of Indigenous Studies and a senior researcher at the Nalungu Research Institute at the University of Notre Dame. She's speaking as part of the Planet Talks program at the WOMAD Festival in Adelaide on the topic of natural rights, along with legal scholars Erin O'Donnell and Peter Burden. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.